We have an interesting relationship with time. I cannot think of another marker or entity or theory, if you want to think of it that way. We've recently had the discussion in my house that time is just this theoretical nebulous thing, like you can just move a clock when you want to, and there are entire states that choose not to observe daylight savings time. And, and my kids have said, I think we should just do what we want as a family. And, and I said, unfortunately, I don't know that that's the world that we live in. Although it seems like in theory, that would be a good idea. You can just mark time the way that you want to mark time and force everyone around you to adjust to that. But I cannot think of another thing with which we have such a varied and complex relationship. Our responses to time, our responses to this thing which affects every facet of our lives. Think of it this way. Time can be a gift. For nearly a week now, we've had the opportunity as a family, we've had the gift of getting to spend time with our oldest who is um, is, is nearing the end of his first semester as a college student uh, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We've got to, gotten to enjoy time with him. Now, we didn't really enjoy Friday uh, because both our football team and our basketball team managed to lose in the same day. So Black Friday, indeed, um, if you are a Tar Heel fan. That time was not so enjoyable, but the time that we've been able to spend with family has, has been a great gift, and the time that we have had with Gresham. And we would say this, if, if you have been able to spend time with loved ones, or if you're spending time with someone you enjoy, or doing something that is life-giving, you would say, gosh, this, this time is truly a gift. At the same turn, we can talk about the ways that time betrays us. I, I had people as I was nearing my 40s and as I, as I turned 40 and have, am now nearing my late 40s have continued to say to me, just wait, the wheels start to go off when you hit 40. And I'm like, it's just a number. I don't understand how that can affect my body. And yet now I am in a place and I talk to people who are older than me and you talk about waking up injured. Like you didn't do anything. I mean, you, it's not like you've just waken up a little sore, but you actually somehow have injured yourself in the act of sleeping. And so time betrays us. And I decided this year, because I meet with a couple of uh, college guys on Thursday mornings, and one of them, as we were wrapping up, said to me, Vern, I have a, have a question for you. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a really serious like life question or deep theological question. I said, yeah, what is it? And he said, when are you going to do No Shave November again? Because it's been a while since you've done that. I'm like, really? That's your big question? You want to know when I'm going to grow a beard again? He said, yeah, you grow a great beard. Well, there's a lot more gray in the beard this time around than there was the last time that I grew a beard. And so, so we feel like time can, can betray us. Time can, um, can affect us in ways that maybe we, we don't want. As we're in this season of Advent, think about the, the way that the familiarity of Advents that have come and gone in your life, the ways that the familiarity with the season can betray us. J.B. Phillips says this, he warns us that the passing of time, the coming and going of, of Advent season after Advent season can produce in us, if we are not careful, an indifference. An indifference where the true wonder and mystery may leave us unmoved, familiarity may easily blind us to the shining fact that lies at the heart of Christmastide. The famili- familiarity of the season of Advent. We know that the poinsettias show up. We know that we hang the chrismons on the tree. We know that, that there are candles and the lighting of, of the candles on the advent wreath. And yet, 
Has the passing of time made us indifferent to the significance of this season? Sometimes it can feel like time is just cruel. If you're in a place of suffering, if you've experienced loss, if you're longing for something to be different in your life and it just seems like it's not ever going to change, then the march of time can seem to us like it is unfair, like it is cruel. Sometimes time can feel like a burden to us. I think specifically of people in in war-torn countries and the passing of time, the, the wondering, is my loved one ever going to return? Are my children ever going to be in, in, live in a, a season or in a time in which they are safe? Is there ever going to be a time in which we are not worried about what is going to happen? And yet, even though all of these things can be true about time, we have a tendency to use time to t- try to comfort one another when things are difficult. Have you ever said this or had these things offered to you if you find yourself in the midst of a difficult time? Something like, this too shall pass. Or time heals all wounds. And, And while you can appreciate the heart that is behind offering that type of encouragement, if we are honest with ourselves, we we know that the passing of time doesn't necessarily heal all wounds. We might become used to the fact that someone that we know and love is no longer with us, but the void will always be there. We, We might become more used to a circumstance in which we are living, but we know that the ache for more will always be be there. And so we offer this thing that is that we have such a varied and complicated relationship with, we, we offer it as a solution or as hope in the midst of challenges that, that we might be facing or in the midst of challenges that those that we love are facing. Time heals all wounds, and yet the march of time, the progression of the natural world in which we live is one toward decay. Now, sure, our bodies if they're doing what they were intended to do, will heal over time. A wound or an injury may heal. You may wake up injured tomorrow morning, but by Tuesday you find that you can get up and walk with some ease when you get out of bed, the passing of time, but but yet our bodies are still aging. The natural world continues to move toward decay, and, and, and so time is truly not the hope that we want it to be. The passing of time is not the gift that we want it to be, and yet there is a gift because there is one that we, we celebrate and one that we anticipate and one that we look forward to, particularly in the season of Advent, one who holds time, one who interrupted time in a very significant way, and his name is Jesus. And so in our passage this morning in uh, from the prophet Isaiah, and we will spend all of, of the season of Advent in um, Isaiah looking and, and listening to these words of the prophet who spoke hope in the midst of a very, very bleak situation for God's people. We hear something from Isaiah about a time that will come, and it is a time that is meant to be full of hope for us, not merely because time is passing, but because time is moving in a specific direction toward a specific end in which all will be made new. As John uh, writes in his revelation of Jesus in Revelation chapter 21, there will come a time when there are no more tears, when there is no more pain, there is no more suffering, no more crying. 
all will be as it should be. Behold, Jesus says, I am making all things new. So it's not merely the passing of time that is the gift for us. It is knowing the one who holds time and who is present in it. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 2. If you are able, in honor of the reading of God's word, you may stand. If you're not, uh, then just in the posture of your heart, would you stand with me? From Isaiah chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Just a bit of context here for us to appreciate what is happening in Isaiah and how rich the book of Isaiah that we have is. And I I encourage you to spend time in the opening chapters in particular of Isaiah over this this Advent uh, season. And it's believed that it's possible that there were three different authors over the course of the collection that we have uh, now as the book of Isaiah, that there were three um, prophets who, who spoke uh, on behalf of God in the spirit of the original Isaiah, the one that we are hearing from uh, this morning. But Isaiah lived uh, in, in, in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period. And, and if you know the, the march of um, God's people, After the exodus, after they were brought out of captivity, um, God gave them the promised land and they began to look around and and look at what other nations had and said, we want kings. And God said, well, I don't don't think you actually do want kings uh, because when I give you good things, you tend to make a mess of them. Uh, And and so God said, I'll give you judges instead. So so God gave the people judges and, and we made a mess of that. And, and so God gave them uh, kings. And, and as we tend to do when God gives us good gifts, uh, we take a good gift and, and we, we kind of mess it up and, uh, and we mutilate it. And part of the problem with God's people, part of what uh, was challenging for them and, and part of the curse that we still carry as, as humans, as sons and daughters of our first parents, Adam and Eve, as we understand the creation story, is that we, we always want more than what we have. Think of the, the, the temptation uh, of, of Adam and Eve. God gave them everything that they could need for life and everything that they could need to flourish in the garden. Everything that God created, God called good, and God gave them all of this that was good as a gift for their enjoyment. And, and the, the serpent, the enemy, comes along and says to Eve, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from this tree because if you do, you will die? I think if you eat from this tree, then you'll, you'll know the things that God knows. And look how appealing this fruit is and, and think about how tasty it must be. And so they become convinced that God is withholding something from them. Just like God's people did throughout history, become convinced that God is withholding something from them and, and, and they are given a king and they become a nation and then they look at the nations around them and say, 
well, they worship this God in this way, so maybe we should add that kind of worship and the worship of that God um, to our worship, or, or they um, sacrifice to these idols, and so maybe we should add that just to cover our bases, just to make sure uh, that, that everything uh, will be as we want it to be. We'll, we'll do what we see our, our neighboring kingdoms doing, and in doing so, the people rebelled against God. One of the commandments God makes very clear is that they shall have no other gods before um, the God of Israel, that they shall not covet, that they shall not want what others have, and yet these are the things that we are tempted by daily. It is a regular part of our struggle in living in obedience to God, and so we are nearing the end of the kingdom period, and God is about to send his judgment first through Assyria and then through the kingdom Babylon, and God's people will be taken out of Jerusalem and will live in exile, and God raises up prophets like Isaiah to speak to his people, to speak a word of judgment. And we hear that, and and for many of us, that makes us cringe because we don't want our faith to be a faith in which judgment happens. And and many of us might look around at our other, you know, brothers and sisters in the faith, and, and all we hear from them is a message of judgment. And we ask the question, where is the hope? Where is the goodness that we've come to understand and appreciate and love about who God is? But understand that that it is God's heart to reveal to his people, to reveal to us first our weakness and our brokenness and our desperate need for something greater than self. Because this world convinces us and we buy in day after day into this lie that we can be self-sufficient, into this lie that we don't need anything greater than self, that if we just set our eyes on the goal and chase the goal that is in front of us, then it will fulfill us, then it will give us meaning, it will give us purpose. But what we find so often is that the the pursuit of that goal, if it is any goal other than God first, then it leaves us empty, it leaves us dejected, it leaves us disappointed. And so God is faithful to bring judgment. God is faithful to hold up his best for us and to show us the ways that we don't measure up to that. So Isaiah is, is... has, has spent the first chapter uh, proclaiming judgment, complete with a purification by fire, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, which the people uh, will, will see happen. But, but he doesn't stop there because in God's economy where judgment exists, there is always hope. Judgment does not have the final say. Our brokenness does not have the final say. Our rebellion does not have the final say. God always offers for us hope in the midst of it. And, and so that's what we see, the word that we see uh, Isaiah speaking to the people here. And th- this phrase there, in the last days, uh, beginning w- in verse 2, and, and we, we tend to read that, and, and God's... Um, the church has a tendency to read in the last days and think of the last days. We think of, we go all the way to Revelation, which for many of us is very confusing and difficult to understand. There's some imagery there that is not like something that you, you know, think of on a daily basis. There's not something that, you know, creatures covered in eyes and, and wings all over them and, and, and you know, a, a throne. And, and these are not things that we tend to conjure up in our daily life. And so we think of in the last days of being something that maybe is a little bit frightening, and yet there's supposed to be hope in that because we know the end of the story. We know that God ultimately has the final say in all things, and that God's kingdom will be uh, among his people. And, and yet for the Hebrew people, when they would read this in the last days, yes, it can have what we, what we call an eschatological 
um, emphasis, meaning at the end of time. But it can also be that over the course of time, God is at work to bring this thing to pass. In the last days, the prophet here is simply telling his audience this vision that he's been given for Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, it's for a future date, but it's meant to be hope in the midst of their dire present circumstances. Yes, God will accomplish this thing in its fulfillment. God is faithful to his promises to accomplish this in, in, its, in its entirety. But if we pay attention, we will see that God is at work bringing this to pass even in our midst. So in the face of judgment, Isaiah is also offering this word of hope. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. And this would have meant something to the people of Israel because, because of their awareness of the ways that the people and the kingdoms and the communities around them worshipped and the knowledge that for every people group that had a God, their God had a mountain. That, that was one of the things that was synonymous with power. And so what Isaiah is saying here, he's, he's speaking in a language that the people would have understood, but what he's saying here is that the mountain of the Lord will be raised up to the point that it is higher than any other mountain. That God's word is authoritative, that there is no one like our God. That God is altogether different than any of the other gods that we would assign power in our lives. And you may think, well, I don't, I don't worship other gods, but is that true? Do we lift up idols in our lives hoping that these ideals are hoping that these things, uh, hoping that this relationship, hoping that the pursuit of this, this career or this advancement in my current career, hoping that these things will protect us and fulfill us and give us meanings. Do, do we idolize things in our lives to the point that they become gods to us? And we're given this promise that the, the mountain of God, that the name of God, that the power of God will be elevated to the point. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. In Philippians chapter 2, we have what is believed to be one of the hymns of the early church. These words that Paul recorded to the church in Philippi. And he's talking about the way that we ought to be humble and exist in relationship with one another. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus then he goes on to write in, in what is believed to be this hymn, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this promise that we see made by the prophet Isaiah, that God's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains and it will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it is a promise that, is, that we see appear even in the New Testament. 
This promise that because Jesus is elevated, he will draw people to himself. Why is that? Why is it that people of other nations will stream to the mountain of God, will stream to the temple? Because they will see that from the God of Israel, from God Emmanuel, God in the flesh, Jesus, humanity is offered a new way. Humanity is offered a new way of relationship with God the Father. Humanity is offered a new way of living in relationship with one another. Many people will come and say, Isaiah goes on in verse 3, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So there will come a time when this word has gone out. And, and, and if we think of John's gospel and the opening of John's gospel, how is this, this eternal nature of Jesus captured? Because John begins his gospel very differently from the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He says, in the beginning was what? The word. And the word was with God and the word was God. This word will go out from Jerusalem. This word of a new way of living. Look at what Jesus outlines in his Sermon on the Mount. The beginning of of Matthew uh, chapter 5, we understand it as the Beatitudes. The meek will inherit the earth. Those who mourn will be comforted, not trampled on. Jesus is taking our view of the world and flipping it upside down and saying, my kingdom looks very different from the world that you are pursuing and chasing and trying to protect and uphold. And when we think about it, that is one of the greatest gifts that we could ever be offered. A new way of thinking, a new way of living, a new pursuit, a new purpose worth chasing. Rather than continuing to be let down by the things and the empty promises of this world, we have the opportunity and are invited to become a part of this stream that is, that is walking and moving toward the temple, toward the mountain of God to use that, that imagery. To realize that there is humanity is hungry for a new way, a new way of thinking, a new way of ordering our lives, a new way of believing, a new way of living in relationship with one another. Because we realize that the way that we have been trying to live or the way that the world promises us leaves us broken, leaves us wounded, leaves us only able to offer to one another, this too shall pass. Or time will heal all wounds. And yet it's not merely the passing of time, it's time moving in a specific direction that gives us hope. It's the time when all will be made new, when Jesus will have his second advent, his second coming, his second arrival on this earth. Isaiah goes on to say in verse 4, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. Now, if we're not careful, we have a tendency to, um, as Blaise Pascal says it, as Brennan Manning records it in his book, Abba's Child, God Created Man and His Image, and we have spent time since then returning the favor. 
that I believe God would vote like I vote. I believe God would view the world the way that I view the world. God would prioritize the things I prioritize. And if we're not careful, then when we read this verse four, he will judge between the nations, we can say, finally, God will say, Vern is right, the rest of you are wrong. Or my ideal is the right ideal, the rest of you, it's time to get on board. But what we come to understand is that Jesus will act as arbiter. Not because Jesus chooses sides, but because Jesus offers a new way. Jesus looks at the selfishness and the self-centeredness and the sin that divides us and says, I've taken away that sin and helps us to realize that it's our sin and brokenness that levels the playing field. That those with whom we disagree are in as desperate need of the loving, saving work of Jesus as we are. And while we may continue to disagree, we realize that to take up arms against those who were created in God's image is no longer the answer because it is not a reflection of God's kingdom. Now, does this mean that we, we shouldn't stand and fight against the oppression as it exists in this world, the malignment of the weak, the mistreatment of, of those who, who cannot protect themselves? Absolutely, we are called to stand and speak out and fight against those things but in a way that is reflective of Jesus, whose heart was for the poor, whose heart was for the meek and the weak. There will come a day when they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Friends, it's not merely the passing of time that will take care of and eventually do away with our selfishness, our self-centeredness, as James says it in his letter to the church, those passions that are at war within us, that put us at odds with one another. It's not merely the passing of time that will do away with those things. It is the coming kingdom. It is placing ourselves under the rule and reign of Jesus, the one who came in humility, to show kings and kingdoms a new way, the one who is elevated to the place where his is the name that is above every name. Now, Jesus has come, and, and we, we spend the, the next uh, weeks leading up to Christmas remembering that, celebrating that, trying to put ourselves in this place of anticipation that God's people existed in when they heard the news that a Messiah would come. Even from what is recorded as the last prophet who speaks in the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament when the angels in the field proclaim the glory of God, that the Messiah has come, there was always a remnant, always a group of people who were faithful to believe that they would see the fulfillment of God's promise in their time. Friends, we have the opportunity to be like those people. What if we lived each day knowing that today is a gift. We will never have another day like this day. And what if we lived as God's people each day, believing that we would see Christ return in our lifetime? Imagine how that changes the way that we view others. Imagine how that changes the way that we view the world in which we live and our purpose in it. That we would find ourselves in that stream going up to the mountain the mountain that is above every mountain because there is hope found there, because there is a new way offered there, because we believe that Christ is not finished, 
that he is returning and will establish forever this kingdom that was inaugurated when he entered this world some 2,000 years ago. Friends, we have the opportunity to allow hope, the hope that this is not all there is, to transform the way that we live and operate in this world. Amen.